This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. Amen. St. Augustine, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So the topic tonight is love addiction and self-reliance in the Confessions of St. Augustine. And I just wanted to make a couple preliminary remarks that this topic is something really close to my heart, and it's actually been really revolutionary in my life. And Augustine, I think, is, is probably my number one hero next to Jesus. So I really love St. Augustine. And actually, when I was in middle school, I was like a total nerd. And my sister came home one day from school, and she said, you know what St. Augustine says? I'm like, I don't even know who St. Augustine is. You know what St. Augustine said? He said... Do not seek to believe, no, do not seek to understand that you may believe, but believe that you may understand. Isn't that gorgeous? Do not seek to understand that you may believe, but believe that you may understand. And so from that moment, I was captivated by St. Augustine. And then I had the great gift of going on to study at the University of Dallas, where I encountered there someone who had become one of my favorite professors in the whole world. Dr. Raymond D. DiLorenzo from the University of Toronto. And he's the one who helped me to really begin to understand in depth the work of St. Augustine. And I have to mention beforehand my great indebtedness to him for his many insights, which form, in a sense, the infrastructure for this entire presentation. So he's well published in the Augustinian Studies, Augustiniana, those other types of, um, sorry, those other journals, so mainly Augustinian Studies is the one that comes to mind, but also in other places. And just also as a note, as we go through the Confessions, I'm not going to be taking you in a strict chronology in the interest of time, but really, really rather by themes and broad strokes. Quick question, can you, can, I, can there just be a little show of hands, if you happen to have already read the Confessions of St. Augustine? Anyone's already read? Okay. Great, fantastic. And now feel free to, I mean, I can't recommend them enough, so definitely you want to pick them up. So hopefully this will be a great introduction to you for that, if you haven't yet read it. Okay, so let's just kind of start with, what are the confessions? What are the confessions of St. Augustine? They're the story of the conversion of a, of a pagan rhetorician into being a Christian priest and preacher. And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful book. Now remember, Augustine is living 354 to 430 AD. So he's like a prequel to St. Thomas Aquinas. That's why we can give this as a Thomistic Institute talk. Okay, so he dedicates this work to his mother, St. Monica, right? Who is a famous mother because she prayed and prayed and prayed for Augustine's conversion. So here's a wonderful thing, right? You have in the Confessions of St. Augustine a work written by a saint and dedicated to a saint. And really, it's addressed to God. And so as you read the Confessions of St. Augustine, 
you'll realize that you're entering into Augustine's prayer. And on one of the times I was reading the, Santa, the Confessions of St. Augustine, I said, okay, this time you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start writing all the different titles by which he calls God. So one of my favorite, he'll say, oh, God of my heart. God, the good of all that exists. But my favorite is, oh, God of my heart, bread of the inner mouth of my soul. Isn't that gorgeous? So you see all these beautiful ways that Augustine speaks to God. So this word confession, right? You think of this, the confessions of St. Augustine. Well, what's a confession? So confession comes from this Latin word, confiteri. And confiteri means to declare openly, to declare openly. And what we're going to see is that this is part of the beauty of the confessions, is that this is one of his themes, and he's going to develop the meaning, the meanings of this word confession. So everyone's familiar with the most obvious meaning of the word confession, which is the first meaning, the confession of sins, right? That's why people think something, oh, something juicy is going to be in here. <laughs> right? So people who aren't even really Catholic or dedicated, they're like, oh, let me read this. Okay, and actually, really great things can happen to you if you do that. So, confession of personal sins. And so this is actually what we find in the first half of the confessions of St. Augustine, his confession of his personal sin. This is where we find what we came for tonight. Love, addiction, and self-reliance. And, you know, as soon as you start reading this, you're like, I kind of like this guy because I can so totally relate to him. So that's definitely how I felt. So how does Augustine start? How does he start books one through three? Books one through three has this really interesting theme. And the theme there is called acculturation. Okay, acculturation. Now, this means for Augustine, acculturation, it's kind of like how we get introduced into what it means to live, what it means to be human in our particular society, right? But we all start out as little babies. And as little babies, we can't even talk, right? So this is another fascinating thing. Okay, this is another major theme in Augustine, so watch out for it. Speech. Speech. He's interested in speech. Remember, Augustine wanted to be a great rhetorician. So when he's talking about acculturation, he says, look at this. We all start out as infants. Oh. <laughs> Thank you for coming. Exhibit A, the little baby crying in the back. Okay, look at this, infant. Have you ever thought about this word and the etymology of this word, infant? You know, in, I-N, like invisible, right? Without visibility. So this in means without. Fons means speech. We are born without speech. Think about this, this is beautiful. The Son of God, the Word, becomes flesh. An infant without words. Think about the word infantry, right? In an army, there's the infantry. Who are the infantry? They're the ones without a voice. They can't speak because it's only the commander, right? The general of the army who speaks and gives the commands. So we're born as infants. And so Augustine says, okay, what happens to us? Because we're being introduced into the culture, we're being taught, in a sense, a way to speak, a grammar for living, but also literally how to speak, right? So do you remember what your mom does? Oh, you're such a cute little baby. You are so perfect, right? And then what does she do? Okay, today we're going to learn how to talk. Okay, so, okay, da. Can you say da? Da. Okay, da. Da. Oh, you did it! Look at my sweet baby. Right, okay, so 
your mouth goes crazy. You know, it's really cool. You know, it actually like releases endorphins in your brain and it makes you want to continue to learn. Right? So this is a really good thing, affirmation. So uh, this is how we all kind of start, right? We, we imitate those in authority over us, our parents. We imitate their way of speaking and we learn how to speak. But we also imitate their way of acting and reacting for better or for worse. Okay, so um, there was this mom and she was, she was like, at a certain point she had this little, her baby was growing up and this a little toddler now. And she was really disturbed because she would go to change his diapers and he would have change in his diapers, like dimes and nickels and quarters and pennies. And she's like, what, what's going on? You know, like, okay, so she couldn't figure it out. But then, and it, and it didn't happen every single time, but it happened enough to be disturbing. So she was one day, you know, holding the baby while her husband's like checking out at the grocery store and, you know, she's got a little baby because he's getting a little bit upset. And then she sees her husband up here, you know, like talking to the, uh, the lady at the register and she, she's messing with something. And so she puts his receipt and his change on the, on the, on the um, counter there. And he takes the change and he puts it in his back pocket. <laughs> and as soon as he puts the change in his back pocket, she's like, that's what it is, right? Can you imagine? This little baby's not even three years old and is already imitating his dad, okay? So this is the way it is with all of us. But, uh, okay, now that happened to be like a cute thing to imitate. But there are some not so cute things to imitate out there, right? So uh, this is going to get a little bit personal here. So let's think about our moms, right? Did your mom, did she criticize, nag, belittle, emasculate your dad, your brothers, right? By, by, was she like so judgmental and critical that she did that? And then what did your dad and your brothers do, right? Did your, did, did your dad isolate himself? Did he get angry? Did he shut down, right? Um, did you have an emotionally distant or an emotionally unavailable father, right? And so now, as like, say you're a young woman, you just are wildly attracted to these emotionally unavailable men, right? Because it's part of this wound that's happening, right? And so we're surrounded by adults when we're still little who are controlling, perfectionistic. Or were you even surrounded by people who were addicted, addicted to pornography, to alcohol, to work, to having things their way? Well, you know, we all come from the dysfunctional family of Adam and Eve. Nothing has changed, right? Original sin is still with us. And so Augustine, he speaks of that very thing that he became, through acculturation, also addicted. Addicted to classical literature, to speeches, to plays, to dramas, to the games. And he says what was central there was the dialectic of shame and honor. We have the same dialectic. Dislike and like, right? So he was taught, he says there, to look for pleasure, to be entertained, to have his curiosity and his lust excited. Oh, it's fabulous. At the beginning of book two, he describes this. He, he talks about the Carthaginian frying pan. He says, all around me hissed a cauldron of illicit loves. So well said, right? And that's, in a sense, what we find today. Isn't that the same? How many among us or how many among your friends are addicted to Netflix, to YouTube, to social media, to movies, to video games, to screens in general. And it's, it's amazing, right? Because this cauldron of illicit loves isn't just around us. It's in our back pocket. It's in our purses, right? You have this little world that is your cell phone 
custom made to you where you are the center of that universe, right? This is incredibly dangerous. So what does Augustine speak of? He speaks of this torrent of human custom. So in Latin, the flumen mori sumani, right? That it just sweeps over us. Have you ever been out to the sea? And then, you, you know, when you're a little kid and you get knocked over by the waves or the undertow pulls you out. He's saying this is what happens. That this acculturation, the torrent of human custom overtakes us. And so what happens? Through this acculturation, what, are we, what is the formation we're actually receiving? The formation we're actually receiving is a formation in loving what does not satisfy. A formation in loving what does not satisfy. And so, you know, you have these people, they have all these disordered loves. And what do those disordered loves do? They make us a prisoner. And then, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but you know prisoners are like, oh, you know, I'm still awesome or whatever. And, you know, there's this idea that Augustine has is that it's a counterfeit liberty. You know, I don't know if you... You know, you think about the stuff your friends write or the things your friends say or the attitudes your friends have, you know, and it's like, I'm going to drink, I'm going to party, I'm going to hook up because I'm free, baby, free. <laughs> I don't say it that way, but, you know, I mean, that's like the basic idea, right? In the search for love, the search for pleasure, it turns up empty, right? It's all a cover-up. And so Augustine has... A fabulous word to explain this experience that we have after we've been acculturated. And that word in Latin is miseria. Miseria. And I think the best translation is Henry Chadwick's wretchedness. Right? This wretchedness. And Dr. DiLorenzo, I love his definition of wretchedness. It's the universal human experience of the absence of interior peace. The universal human experience of the absence of interior peace. And why is this, why is this wretchedness salutary? Because it makes us want happiness. It makes us desire happiness. So I mentioned briefly that Augustine idolized Cicero, a great rhetorician. And Cicero had written um, something called the Hortensius. And in it, he talks about the happy life. So when Augustine read that, he thought, oh, that's what I want. I want that happy life. How do I get out of this? How do I get out of this wretchedness? How do I break somebody's phone? Um, sorry, I just got somebody's phone. Okay, so um, well, what do we all do? We find ourselves wretched, and we say, Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get myself out of this. Self-reliance, right? We rely on ourselves to get out of this wretchedness. Augustine does the same thing. He tries to make his own way out of this miseria. He calls it, he had a pride of mind and heart. He wanted to forge his own way forward, become the next Cicero, famous rhetorician, or the equivalent of making it big in Hollywood for people today. And so, let's just pause for a second and look at the symptoms or the signs, the characteristics of self-reliance. Just do a little check in here. Because if this is what we see in Augustine. This is what Augustine sees in himself. And it helps us to also look at ourselves. So what are some symptoms? Here they are, ready? See if any of these describe you by chance. Anxiety. Isolation. Loneliness. 
Envy, comparison, competition, workaholism. You can't stop, can't stop. You're addicted to work, addicted to activity. Perfectionism, success addiction, love addiction or relationship addiction. Oh, I love the way Conrad Barnes puts it. He calls it restless striving, restless striving. Obsession with time, frustration with time. You work on Sundays. You don't know how to be. You only know how to do. We think, no one understands me. I'm all alone. And where does this all end? Exhaustion. Right? Miseria. That's the miseria of self-reliance. And then the self-reliance tries to get us out of the miseria, and it doesn't work. So because it's turning up empty, what do we do? We become addicted. Right? We somehow try to numb ourselves, comfort ourselves, that our life seems to be one on a hamster wheel. So we see Augustine, and he tells us about his hamster wheel of self-reliance, right? full of this pride of mind and heart. He thinks, oh, you know the scriptures? They're so simplistic. They don't have near the eloquence of Cicero. And the stories, are, they're kind of crude, right? So Augustine kind of you know, turns his nose up to the scriptures, and he instead falls in with this group called the Manichees, right? So they're a, a dualistic sect, and, you know, they believe that the body is bad, all these kinds of crazy things. And so Augustine gets caught up in their, you know, they kind of have this um, fantastical cosmology, and, and actually, Augustine, this is like one of the highlights, you know, kind of like if we were living when the Beatles were alive, like we'd be waiting for the Beatles to come and go to their concert. Okay, so for Augustine, there was this guy, Faustus, who was like the Manichae guru, and so he couldn't wait, because Faustus was coming to town. And so Faustus comes to town, and Augustine like is dying to ask all these questions, right? And so Faustus is preaching, 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 and then Augustine asks questions, and Faustus can't answer Augustine's questions. I don't know if we could answer Augustine's questions, right? But he says what he wanted was substantial food, but Faustus only gave him beautifully decorated cups and dishes, right? Again, this emptiness. And so Augustine, brilliant and filled with intellectual pride, he has to keep moving on, right? He keeps pushing himself. So what is he doing? He's, he's speaking, he's writing, he's teaching. And at one point, he begins teaching in Rome. And when he's teaching in Rome, he becomes sorely disappointed and hurt by his students. Because back in that day, the teacher would teach, and then the students would actually directly pay the teacher, because that's how he made his living. Well, his students were dishonest and disrespectful. They, wouldn't, they didn't pay him. Right, so here, Augustinus, his dream is starting to fall apart, right? Even these, you know, like teenager people, they don't even respect him. And then, that, remember, this is the same time that he's also, you know, has had these series of sexual adventures, and now he was attracted, he talks about, the sweetness of taking on a mistress. But what ends up happening? It ends up becoming a bitter experience where there's suspicion, brawls, jealousy, etc. And so things are just getting worse and worse and worse and worse for Augustine. And one day he is traveling, he's walking home or something like that. And as he's walking home, he sees a, a loud, a loud guy over here. It's a drunken beggar. But you know what about this drunken beggar strikes Augustine? Say, that guy, he looks happy. He looks happier than me. <laughs> and so Augustine finds himself at this really low point, you know, to where he's envying a drunken beggar. And 
All the while, though, what's happening? God has perfectly paved Augustine's way to himself, right? God is drawing Augustine. Because this time, by this time, Augustine has already met Ambrose, St. Ambrose. And his mother is praying like crazy for him. And so what does Augustine tell us? Augustine tells us that in his misery, in his wretchedness, God was speaking to him, drawing him to himself. And the same thing happens to us. God speaks to us in our wretchedness. God speaks to us through his wretchedness. And you know, I love what Augustine says to his self-reliant self. And he says it to all of us who are self-reliant. He asks, why are you relying on yourself only to find yourself unreliable? Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Make the leap without anxiety. He will not withdraw so that you fall. He will catch you and heal you. Isn't that beautiful? He captures this idea that there's a leap, right? A leap of faith. So Augustine, um, he, has this, he has this amazing way of of speaking to us about our own hearts, speaking up to us about our own souls, about our own experience. Um, okay, so we're gonna take a quick commercial break here, but don't get up. You can't get up for this commercial break. Father Bolster was talking about commercial breaks, you know, because it's a three-hour talk. I'm just kidding, it's not. Um, <laughs> he said that there's gonna be a break, right? Okay, here's a commercial break. Are you ready? Okay, so can you raise your hand if you're a Benedict the Sixteenth fan? Any Benedict the Sixteenth fan? Okay, all right, awesome. Okay, so Benedict the Sixteenth. Another reason I'm a Benedict the Sixteenth fan is that he said in an interview. I am a decided Augustinian, okay? So I'm going to tell you a couple of my favorite stories. So one of my favorite stories is, I don't know if you guys know this, but when John Paul II, actually this happens when any pope dies, so John Paul II died in 2005. So what happens in Rome, and me and Sister Maestro were there at the same time, which was really awesome, they, they, there's all these dicasteries and congregations, okay? So, like, there's a congregation for Catholic education, the congregation for divine worship, the congregation, you know, all these different things, causes of saints. And then there's a congregation for the doctrine of the faith, right? So they're in charge of putting a smack down on heresy. So, <laughs> you remember when John Paul II was pope, Joseph Ratzinger, who became Benedict XVI, was the prefect, right? He was in charge of the congregation of the doctrine of the faith. But after the Pope dies, he becomes displaced. And temporarily, so he just becomes a worker in that congregation. And the pro tem administrator is going to be the secretary, okay? And so it's the morning, the next workday after, after John Paul II has died. And he's, I don't know if you've ever seen the gorgeous doors of the CDF right outside the Vatican, right? So there's Benedict XVI, and he's, is he not Benedict XVI? He's just Joseph Ratzinger at this time. He's standing outside the door, and he's waiting, you know? He's probably praying the rosary. And then the secretary walks up, and he says, what are you doing? He said, I'm waiting for you to open the door. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? Um, and then when he was elected pope, they started interviewing, you know, all these cardinals and bishops, you know, tell us about him, tell us about him, tell us about him. So they, so they come upon this cardinal, and they ask this cardinal, well, tell us about, tell us a little bit about this Joseph Ratzinger. And he said, the cardinal said, 
He has the intelligence of ten men and the piety of a little boy on the day of his first communion. Isn't that gorgeous? The intelligence of ten men and the piety of a little boy on the day of his first communion. Okay, now, poor Pope Benedict XVI. You know, they torture you with all these like crazy interview questions. Do you remember when you were in fourth grade and your teacher was like, if you could be any animal, what animal would you be? Okay, well, thank God that he didn't ask that question, okay? But this interviewer is probably thinking like, man, this guy's like some kind of like academic scholar and he's totally out of my league. Okay, so, um, okay, um, so um, if you were stranded on a desert island and you could only take two books with you, this is really the question, okay? If you were stranded on a desert island and you could only take two books with you, what would they be? And of course, he takes everybody seriously, right? So he said, you guys know, what's the first book? The Bible. The second book? The Confessions of St. Augustine. Isn't that awesome? Okay, so what is going on? Well, this is exactly the way Augustine thinks. Because look, the Bible, this huge big Bible, it's the macro story. It's the universal story of every human person ever created. So in this huge, thick Bible is your story, is my story. What is it? It's the story of the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God who is for us. And so we can find here, this is Augustine's idea, we can all find in the macro story of the Bible our own micro story. And so Augustine writes his little micro story. And so what do we read in the Confessions of St. Augustine? We read his own story. We read of the story of the God of St. Augustine. But also we can read our own stories in the life of St. Augustine. So it's fantastic. Think about these two books, right? This big book, the macro story, and this smaller book, the micro story. They both have the same protagonist. And the protagonist is God. The same protagonist in our personal story that's being written right now. And you know, there's something beautiful when you pick up the Confessions of St. Augustine. How does Augustine tell his story? How does he show us there's a connection between the macro story of the Bible and his micro story? Well, read it. He, te- he, makes, he tells the story of his life through a patchwork of quotations from the Bible, right? He pastes together the words of the Bible, echoing the words of the Bible to tell his own story. And we could all do the exact same thing. So, what does Augustine do? Talking about the way out of this wretchedness, this miseria, well, it's not going to be self-reliance. He turns to the Bible, and there are two primary images he uses in the Confessions to describe this miseria. They're biblical images. The first are the fields, right? Think about the fields. So the fields, what have they got on them? Well, they've got rocks in them. They've got weeds. They've got thorns, spiny things. How can you grow wheat? How can you grow flowers? And, and God, Christ, who is he? He's the cultivator of the field. You know, they call, um, so the field is our hearts, and God is the cultivator of the field. You know, they call Augustine, scholars call Augustine, the first Christian psychologist, right? So so he, Augustine speaks about, you know, I think Augustine, Augustine could also be called the first phenomenologist, the first Christian phenomenologist. 
So he calls God the cultivator of the soul, right? So for Augustine, God is like the psychotherapist of the heart. And he's going to take out the rocks and the weeds. And then what's he going to do? He's going to sow good seed. Okay, so that's one of the images, scriptural and in the Confessions of St. Augustine. The second image, waters. Think about the flood with Noah, right? The rivers. But then also swamps, fogginess, muddiness, slime, right? This captures the wretchedness. The flumen moris humani, right? That crowds over us, is drowning us out, degrading us, debasing us. As soon as you think of waters, what does Augustine draw us to think of? He makes us look at the chaos of our own souls. The chaos of the waters, it's the chaos of our own souls. What did God do at the very, at the very beginning over the chaos of the waters? He spoke. He spoke. And what did he bring? Cosmos, order. So here you see it again, right? That theme of speech. God is the speaker to the soul. And this is how we can get out of that misery, is if we allow God to speak to our souls. And what is absolutely critical for Augustine is that we recognize that that speech is real. God's speech to your soul is real, right? More real than my speech right now to you. And think about, think about the father of lies. What did Satan do? What did he say to Eve in the garden? Did God really say? Wait, you're telling me God spoke to you. God doesn't speak to you. Right? As soon as we doubt God's speech, that's when we fall into sin. And so this idea of listening, listening, listening to God's speech. So what begins, what begins our conversion, what allows us to begin to hear God's speech is humility. The way out of wretchedness for St. Augustine is humility. So I'd like to read to you from uh, a little bit from a few of his other works. So this, this is from the soliloquies. The soliloquies are Augustine talking to himself. He's kind of like being in on his conversation with himself, okay? So Augustine says in the soliloquies, I desire to know God and the soul. And then he asks himself, nothing more? He answers, absolutely nothing. That's all we need to know, God and the soul. So Augustine can teach us this. And then this is from his letter to Dioscorus. This is what is needed First, humility. Second, humility. Third, humility. And however, however often you should ask me, I would say the same. Not because there are no other precepts to be explained, but if humility does not precede and accompany and follow every good work we do, and if it is not beset before us to look upon and beside us to lean upon, and behind us to fence us in. Pride will wrest from our hand any good deed we do while we are in the very act of taking pleasure in it. And so this humility is so key for Augustine because what was he realizing in his own life? He was realizing that pride 
corrupts our capacity to discover God, to hear his speech in our life. And who was he surrounded by? He was surrounded by the pagan philosophers, the skeptics, and then later on he's gonna, he runs into the Manichees, and he runs into the Donatists and the Pelagians, right? These were the controversies of his time. And what was the one thread that drew them all together? Pride. Attributing to themselves their own intelligence and their own knowledge instead of attributing it to God. And so you find here the root of what is in Thomas Aquinas, this beautiful humility, this recognition that as knowledge grows, humility must increase and always be greater than any knowledge. And you know, it's a beautiful word too, that word humility, the Latin root is humus, earth, soil, right? So remember, the sower went out to sow. And some of the seed that he threw fell on the good soil and yielded 30 or 60 or 100-fold. Or also uh, Ash Wednesday, right? Remember you are dust, and to dust you will return. So that beautiful word, humility. Okay, now what happens? We have just seen the first of Augustine's conversions, the conversion of his intellect. What will the second conversion be? What do you think the second conversion is going to be? The conversion of his will, right? The conversion of the heart. And we're all familiar with that famous scene in the Garden of Milan. Actually, it's on the front of this um, edition, the Henry Chadwick translation, which I think is really the best, most worthwhile translation, um, and most beautifully done. So you see Augustine, he's thrown himself under the tree, right? Because And that famous prayer, it's a fabulous prayer, right? Lord, make me chaste, but not yet, right? <laughs> Let me get in a couple more bad sins. Um, so we, we can relate to that, right? So he, he was struggling, right, with his lust, with his addiction, and we know that Augustine is going to accept the grace to triumph. Right? God offers the grace to us. He's offering the grace to you right now to overcome whatever addiction, whatever sin you're struggling with. But we have to accept the grace. right? And so this is what Augustine does. He receives, he accepts the grace to accept the grace. And so he gives up his fornicating life definitively. He gives up his intellectual pride. And so on this glorious, beautiful Easter day of 387, Augustine is baptized by St. Ambrose. And his mother is there to witness it. Right? This is so beautiful. So what are you looking out for in the confessions? You're looking for the meanings of confession. And you're also looking for conversions. And you're looking for speech. Right? Those are some of the major themes. So look. We come now here to the second meaning of confession. The first meaning was the confession of sinners, right? The confession of sin. The second meaning of confession is the confession of faith, right? The profession of belief and love for our Lord Jesus Christ. The profession of the Catholic faith. And so this is what happens to Augustine in the Easter of 387. And so after this, Monica and Augustine, they return home, and soon after, um, actually this is one of the most, oh, one of the most beautiful, beautiful parts of the Confessions of St. Augustine, is when Augustine talks about 
this, um, this amazing time that he and his mother have in Ostia Antica by the sea. And so he has this like image where they're sitting by the window. I think they're sitting by the window and they're looking out on the sea. And they're talking about God, right? Remember how much Augustine, Augustine's mom, Monica, loved God. And it was just, it was the, it was the sadness of her life that she did, that her son did not share her love for God. But now he does. And so they, there they are sitting by the sea talking about their love for God. And so I think that's one of the absolutely most beautiful nostalgic parts of the Confessions of St. Augustine. So shortly after that, Monica dies. And so Augustine, you can imagine, is beside himself. His mother has died, so what does he do? He, he retires into a monastery, and there he prays. Meanwhile, his son, his illegitimate son, Adeodatus, dies. And also, meanwhile, Augustine's fame is spreading. So Augustine leaves and he returns to North Africa in 391. And what, do people, what are the people saying? What are the people doing? What are the people in Hippo saying? Ordain Augustine! Ordain Augustine! And so his bishop has to ordain Augustine. So Augustine is a priest. And then the bishop's like, hey, this, these people are on to something. You're going to be my successor, right? So Augustine will become the bishop of Hippo, making Hippo famous. Not to be confused with hippopotamus. That's, hippopotamuses are from sub-Saharan Africa and some parts of West Africa. Not from this hippo that we're talking about in North Africa. Okay, so... Now, I want you to just pause for a second and think about, we've just been through like Augustine's early life, right? And he has gone through all of this torture, this pain, this wretchedness, right? His infancy, his boyhood, his adolescence, his, his young adult life with all of these vicissitudes and the manichees and the shame that he experienced and his struggle with his intellect, his struggle with his will, his, his struggle in coming to the faith and surrendering. And his mother died, and his son died. And where do we find Augustine? Well, we find Augustine in his bishop's residence. And he's sitting down at his desk, praying, right? Because that's what he's learned over the years that this is what to do in moments of silence. And he starts to pray. And as he's praying, his memory is flooded with with the knowledge, with the recollection of God's mercies, of God's graciousness, of all the lights and strength that God has given him. And so what does Augustine do? He picks up his pen and he starts to write. And this is what he writes. You are great, Lord, and highly to be praised. Great is your power, and your wisdom is immeasurable. Man, a little piece of your creation, desires to praise you. A human being bearing his mortality with him, and carrying with him the witness of his sin, and the witness that you resist the proud. Nevertheless, to praise you is the desire of man, a little piece of your creation. You stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. 
What did Augustine just begin at his desk? He began to write his confessions. And that beginning of the confessions is the third meaning of confession that we find in the confessions of St. Augustine. Right? The first was the confession of sin. The second is the profession of faith. And the third is the confession of praise. Right? And you could say that there's a, a kind of progression here, right? That the confession of sin is the confession of sinners. The confession or the profession of faith is the confession of the righteous. And then this confession of praise, the third one, it's the confession of the saints. And so this is what we have at the beginning of the book of St. Augustine. And so what do we find? What do we find Augustine doing? Well, he's saying, look at this. This big book, what is it about? It's the way of wisdom. The way of wisdom is in this big book, this macro story. And what is Augustine finding? His own little way of wisdom in his little book. Right? This is a way of wisdom. You know one of my favorite things that he says? You allow them to stray from the straight road, for they return humbler and wiser. And so this is precisely what happens to Augustine, right? We return, we are like him, we return humbler and wiser. So confessio, confession. Now we're going to go on to a fourth meaning of confession. And what is that? Reason that yields to wisdom. Reason that yields to wisdom. So think about it this way. Our puny human way of thinking, yielding to God's way of thinking. Okay, I need to unpack this a little bit, right? Because this is a world that's not easy. Okay, so the best way I can think of to unpack it is by talk, telling you about this guy who lives a thousand years or so after St. Augustine, Geoffrey Chaucer, the father of English literature. So, you know, you've heard of the Canterbury Tales, right? So one of those tales in the Canterbury Tales is the Wife of Bath's Tale. So I'm going to tell it slightly differently, um, but I'm going to tell, tell you the same basic story that's in the Wife of Bath's Tale. Okay, so what happened to the Wife of Bath's Tale? In the Wife of Bath's Tale, there is this, it begins with this knight, okay? This knight who he thinks he's all that and a bag of chips. And so this knight, he does something absolutely reprehensible, despicable, horrific, terrible, okay? And so he's, he's, he's arrested, and he's brought before the king. And the king says, because of what you've done, you deserve to die. So all of a sudden, the little the, the guy, I'm all bad in a bag of chips. Please don't take my life. Right? So he begs and pleads, begs and pleads, begs and pleads. And so the king says, all right, I will have mercy on you. But I'm giving you a quest. And you have exactly one year to complete this quest. Okay, so what's the quest? He says, the king, there he is. Here's the king. Sorry, here's the king. The king's up here. And he says, you have to complete this quest. What's the quest? Within one year, you must return, and you must give me the answer to this question. What is it that women most desire? And he's like, oh, no, I'm like, that's not an answer. Okay, so he's starting to despair right there. He's like, okay, I really want to live. And so he goes off. Now, this is a really long story, right? So what he's doing, he's traveling, he's going through the mountains, he's starving, people throw rocks at him, the robbers try to get him, right? There's all these terrible things that happen. People, he goes to this village, they give him an answer, over here they give him another answer, they go over here, get another answer, and then he's like more torturing, more hunger, more wounded, all this bad stuff happens. And then finally he finds out, I'm supposed to go, I'm supposed to get to this hovel. 
There's supposed to be like this hag, this witch, and she knows the answer. Oh, I gotta get there. He gets there. He, gets there. he finally gets there. And then he gets to the, he gets to the Hubble, and he's like, oh man, she is really ugly. And he's like so repulsed that she's so ugly, but he's like, okay, she's gonna save my life because if I'm really nice, she's gonna tell me the answer. Okay, so she comes. Hello, my son, my pretty. And then, and then he says, please, 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 would you help save my life and tell me what it is that women most desire? Well, I will tell you, but you must come back afterwards and do my bidding. He's like, I'm running out of time. Okay, 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 I'll do what Yeah, whatever you want. Okay, I'll just come back. Please tell me the answer. What women most desire is that men should obey them. What women most desire is that men should do their will. He's like, okay, thanks, bye. Okay, women most desire is that men should obey them. The men should do their will. Okay, so he goes back. No, he's trying to travel. He's traveling, traveling. All this terrible stuff happens to him. He's traveling back, traveling back, traveling back, just in time to a favor for the king. All right, I'm ready for your answer. What is it that women most desire? Your Majesty, what women most desire is that men should obey them, that men should do their will. That's a correct answer. You can live. <gasps> so he goes and he has parties with the, with the friends of his that all still talk to him. He has all these parties, all these parties, all these parties. He's so happy, right? Gets drunk, all that kind of crazy stuff. And then he's waking up from his drunkenness, and what does he remember? Oh no, I gotta go back to the hag, or she's gonna like put some terrible spell on me and curse me. So he goes back, he's gotta to take that super long, depressing journey back to the hag. <laughs> okay, he's going back to the hag. I don't know what she's gonna ask. What is she gonna ask? Oh, so she gets, he gets back to the stinky, oh, the stinky hovel with the ugly, oh. Okay, so he gets there. Ah, my son, my pretty, you have returned. You are here to do my bidding. My lady, what is your bidding? You, you must marry me. <laughs> but I shall give you a choice. I can either stay as I am, and I will be faithful to you. Or I can transform myself into a beautiful maiden but I will not be faithful to you. So the knight is like, oh, 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 oh. Like, you decide. <laughs> you decide. And so she is transformed into a beautiful maiden who is faithful to him. Isn't that amazing? She's transformed into a beautiful maiden who is faithful to him. See, this is the trick of the devil. The trick of the devil is that God wants you to be miserable. That God isn't wise. You've got a better plan than he does. You know better than he does, right? And so, but this is exactly the lie. Because what does God want? God wants that men should obey him. That men should do his will. And you know what? God's will for us is so much more amazing than our will for ourselves. God's dream for us is so much more amazing than our dream for ourselves. Take Augustine, case in point. What did he want to be? Movie star? Hollywood? Next Cicero, right? That's what he wanted for himself. What did God want for St. Augustine? To be a father of the church. 
a doctor, a confessor, a saint, and to be, in the West, the greatest of the fathers of the church and one of the most beloved. That's what God wanted for St. Augustine. Okay, any John Paul II fans? John Paul II fans, yes, thank you. Okay, so, John Paul II, let's think about John Paul II for a few here. Because, you know, he's a pretty smart guy, handsome guy. And, you know, he had, he had, he had dreams for himself, too. You know, that he had, he had good dreams, he had noble dreams. What did he want to do? He wanted to be a playwright. He saw that that Polish culture was at stake, and he wanted to write these plays, and he wanted to be in theater, and he wanted to revive Polish culture from the inside. Oh, and there was this beautiful girl that he was involved with, and he wanted to be a father and have children, which is such a wonderful, noble thing, right? So those were John Paul II's dreams, right? Those were Carol Wojtyla's dreams. But what were God's dreams for Carol Wojtyla? What were God's dreams for Carol Wojtyla? What's God's wisdom? God's plan, that he be Pope, right? That he be Pope, the vicar of Christ on earth. So God's plans were that Carol Wojtyla would become Pope, that he would play a major role in the fall of communism in the 20th century, and that he be one of the longest reigning popes ever. Okay, now, John, we all love John Paul II. So, you know, a super sad day, right, when he died. We were all getting ready. Benedict XVI said he showed us, he's showed us how to live. Now he's showing us how to die. And he dies. And Rome is a wreck, right? Rome is upset. But, well, okay, Rome's upset. And not only are they upset, they're upset on a practical level, too, because there's going to be a ton of people here for his funeral. Our place is a mess. Like, our sewer system's over. Do we have enough bathrooms? Can we get enough food? So they start getting all their best mathematicians, and they calculate, 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 calculate. Okay, we're calculating about Two million people are going to come to this funeral. So we've got to start planning now ASAP. Okay, so they start planning, 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 planning. They do all this planning. Okay. So the day finally comes of St. John Paul II, Pope John Paul II's funeral. Do you know how many people actually came to his funeral? They were expecting two million. How many people actually came to his funeral? Five million people. The best the most well-attended funeral in the history of humankind, right? It was God's dream that he not only become Pope, but be one of the most beloved Popes that ever lived. So this is like, you know, our wisdom, human wisdom, compared to God's wisdom. And that's what Augustine says confessio is, to surrender, to yield our wisdom to his wisdom. Not because his wisdom is irrational. It's not irrational. It's supra-rational. It's beyond our reason. It's when you lose your life that you'll save it. So this idea, right, of the confessions, this idea of reason yielding to wisdom, surrendering to God's wisdom, is all a part of how Augustine sees this notion of confession. He has two sayings about piety. Piety. Remember, because that, you know, the Iliad, um, the Aeneid, I should say, sorry, Virgil's Aeneid, right? There's, there's all this piety in there. It's this one of those, one of those classical ideals. Piety. So Augustine says, piety is wisdom. Isn't that beautiful? To have that fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Go back 
to what Benedict XVI said. Oh no, go back to what the Cardinal said about Benedict XVI. He has the intelligence of ten men, right? Wisdom. And the piety of a little boy on the day of his first communion, right? So wisdom and piety go together. But Augustine has another famous saying about piety, and it's this. Piety is confession, right? If you, if you really have this fear and love of the Lord, you confess. You declare openly God's wisdom, and that God's wisdom is greater than my wisdom, right? So this confession is the human verbal response to God's working in our life. These confessions are Augustine's human verbal response to God's working in his life. So what if you read the confessions, what can you see? What can you see in the confessions? In the confessions, we have the story of how Augustine overcomes his wordlessness, right? His infancy, he's being a spiritual infant, a spiritual pygmy, right? Because he's refusing to grow. Like We can relate to that, we all refuse to grow. And so he says this wordlessness Right, being without speech, it's one and the same as ignorance of God. Wordlessness is one and the same as ignorance of God. Ignorance of God in what way? Well, ignorance of God's presence in your life. Ignorance of God's working, God's grace, God's love. And when Augustine recognizes it, he, he sees it. He's no longer ignorant. He overcomes his wordlessness, and in piety, he makes confession. So now I'm going to read to you the confession of St. Augustine that is iconic of his confessions. Late have I loved you, O beauty so ancient and so new. Late have I loved you. And see, you were within and I was in the external world and sought you there. And in my unlovely state, I plunged into those lovely created things which you made. You were with me, and I was not with you. The lovely things kept me far from you, though if they did not have their existence in you, they had no existence at all. You called and cried out and shattered my deafness. You were radiant and resplendent, and you put to flight my blindness. You were fragrant, and I drew in my breath, and now I pant after you. I tasted you, and I feel but hunger and thirst for you. You touched me, and I am set on fire to attain the peace which is yours. So what? is this fourth meaning of confession. It is speech. It is our speech about God's speech to us. Right? That's what these are. Augustine is speaking about God's speech to him. That's what it means to confess. And can you guys, like, we're going to notice in heaven, can you think of how many people have been converted by reading Augustine's confessions? Okay, one of my favorite people is converted by reading the Confessions of St. Augustine, Teresa of Avila. Right, St. Teresa of Avila, she talks about this. Okay, so, so Teresa of Avila reads Confessions of St. Augustine and she's converted. And then do you remember this? 
in, in a library somewhere in this professor's in this professor's house. There was another woman, another professor. She's looking at the book, looking at the book. She finds she comes across the autobiography of Saint Teresa of Avila. She's like enraptured by it. She reads it all night, right? In the morning, she wants to be Catholic. Who is this? Edith Stein, right? Isn't that amazing how the way the community of saints works? How confession works, right? We have this duty to speak about God's speech in our own life. So wisdom, piety, is confession. To speak about God's speech. Okay, so let's go back to Augustine's dream. What was Augustine's dream? To be a rhetorician. Why a rhetorician? Well, because that's what Cicero was. And Cicero, Cicero articulated beautifully this classical ideal. And what was the classical ideal as Cicero articulated it? Well, it was this ideal of the perfectus orator, right? The, the perfect rhetorician. Okay, well, what's, what's with rhetoricians, okay? Well, why, why are rhetoricians so important? Well, in classical antiquity, the rhetoricians, it was upon the rhetoricians that the prosperity and life of a city depended. Okay, that's pretty important. It was upon the rhetorician that the life and prosperity of a city depended. Why? Because the rhetorician would be the one who, you know, everybody else would be working with, and, and then... Look, you guys, the way we're doing the economy right now and the way we're doing sales and trading, it's it's we're gonna we're gonna we're in for it. We're gonna be we're gonna be turning belly up in no time. So the rhetorician had to get out there and he had to convince people to revamp the whole economic system. Or the rhetorician had to get up there and convince mothers and fathers and even fathers to, to give up their sons for war, right? And fathers to go into war so that the city could live, so that the city could prosper. And so the rhetorician was incredibly important. What does a rhetorician do? He speaks. He speaks into the chaos. What do we find in the Confessions of St. Augustine? In the Confessions of St. Augustine, from a classical standpoint, what do we find? This is part of Dr. DiLorenzo's brilliance. We find the Christian transposition of the classical ideal of the perfectus orator into Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, he is the perfectus orator. And you are that city. And I am that city. And it is upon his eloquence that the prosperity and life of that city depends. And so we find here in Augustine this praise of our Lord Jesus Christ. And look at this. We also find the third conversion. The first conversion was the conversion of his intellect. The second conversion was the conversion of his will. The third conversion is the conversion of his speech. The conversion of his speech from wordless, wordlessness to the praise of the glory of the God of Jesus Christ. 
Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, Amen. as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. St. Augustine. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. I'm happy to take any questions, but I can tell, I can tell you a little bit more about some of um, what Augustine says prepares us to make confession a rhetorical organization of the soul, if you want. I can talk about whatever, some of the things I, yeah, whatever you want me to talk about, I'll talk about. I mean, I'll try. Are there any questions? Yes. So obviously, Saint Saint Augustine was, you know, an an important father, father of the church. You know, important guy. But at the same time, the perspective of the church fathers is, in a way, only half of the human experience. Do you think that a woman would have written any differently about love and addiction and self-reliance? Or oh, for sure, for sure. It is universal. I, well, see, that, that's the thing about the human experience, right? That there's a part... I, I don't think it's exactly fair to say that it's only half of the experience. Because I think we have more in common as human beings um, than we do as either all men or all women. Yes. So, okay, yes. you're trying to exaggerate and get people around. Okay, so, um, <laughs> so I think that's definitely true. Like, if you read some of the female saints, like, it's, again, I, I can't help but talk about Teresa of Avila or even Teresa of Lisieux, right? It's a very different, um, it's very different in the term, but I think, yeah, there's a, there's a kind of, um, I think what I love about Augustine is his brutal honesty about the way things are. And also because he was trained as a rhetorician, he not just he doesn't only give us the truth, he gives us the truth in a way that's so beautiful, right? It it captures your heart. And I think that's also one of the experiences that I had at the University of Dallas was that it that it that it showed me that the truth, this is what von Balthasar says. He says, and and, and at one glorious day we come to discover that the truth is not only good, but that it is also beautiful. And Jesus Christ, right? He's the truth. He's the way, the truth, the life. And he's true, and he's good, and he's beautiful. And Augustine says, it's the beautiful that draws our love. And I think this is what Augustine has a particular gift for, drawing our love. And I think as, you know, the Thomistic Institute, I think we have to remember that this was something also at the heart of Thomas's own life, was his love for God. Right? Do you remember that famous story when... Um, you know, Augustine, uh, sorry, uh, Thomas Aquinas is there writing. So, 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 so Thomas Aquinas, you know, around 1250 or maybe toward the end of his life, 1274, he was um, praying in front of his crucifix. And the crucifix, like, comes alive and says to Thomas, Thomas, you've written well of me, right? What do you desire? And what does Thomas say? Oh, more pens? No, no. He, sa- he says, nothing but thyself. So he, Thomas was faithful to his father, St. Augustine, right? I'm sure you know, maybe you don't know. Dominicans follow the rule of St. Augustine, right? Every week, the sisters have the rule of St. Augustine read to them. So, um, yeah, so I think there's something, there's something for everyone. I mean, I mean how, many, how many people, how many women are in love with St. Augustine? I mean, put me first in line. So, um, yeah, he speaks to a universal human experience. And this is, again, this is amazing, right? This is, what, this is part of God's dream for Augustine. That he be, uh, you know, one of these secondary causes in our conversion. Thank you. Yes. Um, 
um, where you say that God takes us on a path away from the straight and narrow in order to bring us back humbler and wiser. It brought to my mind a quote from St. Joseph Lisieux where she says, I wish, or how I wish I could show people that an, an innocent heart loves God just as much as a penitent one. And I wonder how you would, I know Christianity is full of paradoxes, but how those two viewpoints of like the Christian path in different souls work, like the wandering or the always innocent, and I don't know. Oh, fantastic question, fantastic question. So going back to Benedict XVI, our decided Augustinian. So they were, they were interviewing him, and the um, interviewer says, how many ways are there to heaven? And he said, as many as there are people. And that's what's so beautiful, right? Each one of you is walking that path with our Lord, and he's writing your story. Okay, if you watch something really amazing to read, is read Benedict XVI when he's Joseph Ratzinger. He writes a little treatise on heaven. And when he, in that treatise, he writes about our irreplaceable uniqueness. So, um, okay, this is the best way I can think of to explain it. And I've got it from Father James Brent. Um, so it's this idea that, okay, so think about this. Carmelites, Dominicans, we're kind of different, right? But, you know, a sign of a Dominican vocation is if you want to be a Carmelite or if you're attracted to Carmelite spirituality. So I love Carmelite spirituality. Okay, so what, what's going on? 15th, 16th century, what are the Carmelites doing? Interior castle. Ascent of Mount Carmel, right? So like they're all stuck. They're all stuck inside, right? And what are the Dominicans doing? Dominicans are out there smoking cigarettes in the quad with the students at the university, right? You know, talking about matter and form and, you know, okay. So the Dominicans were always very incarnational. So around this same time, there's a Dominican writer, and instead of going inside, he goes out. And this book is called The Cross of Jesus Christ by Louis Chardon. And Louis Chardon has this beautiful idea there. And it's, it's precisely to your question, you know, that we each, have a, we each have a path. And the central tenet there is Christ wants to live again in you some aspect of his incarnation. Isn't that amazing to think about? Christ wants to live again in you some aspect of his incarnation. So you think about Damien of Molokai, right? What does Christ want to live again in Damien of Molokai? Being among the lepers. Remember Maximilian Kolbe in the concentration camp? Somebody escapes, they call 10 men forward. Okay, we're gonna kill these 10 men to make up for the one who ran away, right? To scare everybody else from running away. And then one man breaks down. Oh, I have a family, I have a wife, I have, I have children. And so Maximilian Kolbe, this priest in the crowd, says, I'll take his place. And he takes his place. What did Jesus want to live again in Maximilian Kolbe? Greater love has no man than this that he laid down his life for his friends. Mother Teresa of Calcutta, do you remember her? Her 50 <laughs> years, 50 years of spiritual darkness. 50 years of spiritual darkness. What did our Lord want to live again in Mother Teresa of Calcutta? Do you remember? She put a cross up in every single one of her chapels, right? The chapels in the slums, chapels wherever they were. There'd be a cross. Do you remember the two words that'd be right next to the cross in every single one of her chapels? I thirst. I thirst. In Mother Teresa of Calcutta, Christ wanted to live again 
his thirst for you and his thirst for me, right? His love for souls. And that's what she did. She slaked the thirst of Christ by her love. And she slaked the thirst of all the thirsty poor people out there who were longing for Christ's love. So what does Christ want to live again in you? Ask him, Lord, what aspect of your incarnation do you want to live again in me? Okay, so this is going back again. I can't help but do it the time Sister Ray, Esther and I were in Rome together. So, or, no, wait, yeah, close, okay? <laughs> so, um, 2006, this book came out. No one should read it except for maybe Father Bolster, okay? This book came out called The Right, R-I-T-E. The Right, it was about the right of exorcism, okay? So you open up this book, and it starts with a story. And it's about the very beginning of the rite of exorcism. Okay, so what happens at the beginning of the rite of exorcism is that um, they, they call upon all the saints. Okay, so there's a story, and what's happening, this woman is possessed by a demon, and so I don't know how many demons, and so they've got her like restrained on the bed, right? And then she's like going in and out of consciousness or whatever. And the priests are all around, and then there's head exorcist, however all that works. And they start praying this litany of the saints, calling upon her baptismal saints, her patron saints, her favorite saints, the saints of the members of her family, all this kind of stuff. Okay, so they pray for praying, 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 praying. But then exorcists have said that sometimes saints you do not call upon will actually show up for the exorcism. Okay, so they weren't calling upon some of these saints, right? But then they knew the saint came because the woman, the demon and the woman, sits, makes her sit up. And the demon says, oh, no, not you. Told us to us. Whoa. Who just came? John Paul II. Isn't that gorgeous? Told us to us. What did Jesus want to live again in John Paul II? Being the son of Mary. So I think this is a marvelous question, right? What, what is it that he wants to live again in you? And sometimes your friends will be able to give you some insights. Um, but I think it's, it's a very personal question. If you read the book of Revelation, this is actually one of Therese's favorite passages in the book of Revelation, Revelation 21, I think it is. So the one who conquers, right? This is a spiritual battle, and we need Jesus right there next to us. Or actually, I like to hide behind him. Um, so the, he says, to the one who conquers... I will give some of the hidden manna and a white stone upon which a name is written that is known to him alone who receives it. Isn't that beautiful? There's a white stone with a name. And when you read it, you'll be like, oh my goodness, that's who I am. Isn't that gorgeous? Elizabeth of the Trinity, what did she think she was? Laudem Gloriae, right? The praise of glory. She lived for the praise of the glory of God. So I think it's a great, uh, wonderful, thank you question. Thank you. Okay. Yes, Father Bolster? Um, so I think one of the, as you sort of so beautifully yes. portrayed, I think one of the things you so beautifully exposed and sort of painted the picture of is just the confessions as just kind of the, the beauty, the mystery, the drama of conversion, right? Of each soul yeah. of sin and redemption and everything. Um, and sort of going back to what you mentioned about, um, kind of related to that question, um, that in sin, God never, like his grace is always there. It's always sufficient. We don't, we just don't always accept it. Um, 
But then this whole little business about addiction is complicated, right? It yeah. complicates things. And so sometimes, at least in my very limited experience as a priest, um, sometimes you have people and it's like, Father, I'm trying. I'm doing the best I can, you know? I feel like I'm trying to avail myself of everything that God is, and I just keep falling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think there is, obviously, in greater and lesser scales of actual addiction, but it, it throws like another factor in there, just sort of like a momentum, a kind of um, a difficulty. And so um, it certainly does make us humble. It makes, it makes us wise and coming back to the Lord. What do you think you would say or St. Augustine would say is sort of the proper spiritual attitude when you're in that, right? Does that make sense? Fantastic question. Um, now, Dr. Ballet is here, probably can answer this question much better than I could, but <laughs> I'm going to give it a shot here. So, um, for Francis Sales is the one who comes to my mind first. And it's because I love what he said. He said, um, after you fall, say to yourself, are you surprised that weakness is weak, infirmity infirm, frailty frail, right? So, don't, you know, he says basically, don't, don't excoriate yourself, don't beat yourself up. But just turn to yourself gently and, you know, get back up and hold on to the Lord, right? We, and we see, like, um, Therese, Therese, a little flower, right? Who talked about she just keeps lifting. She, sees, she goes to the bottom of the steps, right? And God is God the Father is at the top of the steps. And she's too little to climb up the steps. So what does she do? She keeps lifting her foot, lifting her foot, lifting her foot. And then her dad's going to feel bad for her. He can't take it anymore. He's going to rush down the stairs, pick her up, and bring her up the stairs. She's a spiritual genius. And so I think the worst thing you can do is, um, is to beat yourself up because that doesn't do any good. I think the best thing you can do is cling to Christ. And actually, it's really interesting because actually you're reminding me of, the, what, again, going back to our time in Rome, one of the really, it was kind of just fun, you know, the, we lived, at, we lived um, by Largo, Argentina, and the guys, the priests from the NAC, where, where you also studied, Father, um, would pass by, and we'd sometimes we'd just run into each other, and the sisters and the priests or the seminarians, we'd walk to school together. And now one of the terrible things about Rome, I mean, there's so many gorgeous things about Rome, don't get me wrong, but one of the yucky things is that they have like these ads that are like almost like pornography, right? And sometimes there actually is pornography, and then sometimes there's pornography on the, on the ground or whatever. So... Um, I remember walking, we were, some of us were walking, and this, and this one guy who was um, about to become a deacon, he said, yeah, I just got to keep my eyes to the ground, just got to keep my eyes to the ground, okay? And then it, something else, then another day we were walking, and there was this, that, this guy who had been ordained a deacon, and he was saying, yeah, it's, it's really so sad, you know, these poor people, and you know, for myself, I just, I just got to give it to the Lord, and I thought, you know what? This guy's going to make it. And he's the one who made it, right? Because we have to put it in our relationship. We have to put it in our relationship. You know, the great Fulton Sheen, he said, the Lord and I, we share a great secret. Only he knows how weak and foolish and stupid I am, right? And he loves you anyway. So God's love for you is not dependent on what you do or what you don't do. I mean, you should definitely strive to do the good, <laughs> right? But remember this, Fulton Sheen also said this, God doesn't love you because you're lovable. You're lovable because God loves you. His love is what makes you lovable. And you know, there's that amazing word that we have in the Catholic tradition 
We talk about the dignity of the human person. What's the root of that word dignity? The Latin dignus, worthy. You are worthy. Worthy of what? Worthy of being infinitely, intimately, unconditionally loved by God. And why are you worthy? Because he made you. He made you for himself. And your heart will be restless until it rests in him. 